Christ is risen. You know, it's so good to hear a response to that. Last Easter, had I tried that, it would have just been crickets because it was, <laughs> maybe Bob in the sound booth would have shouted back at me, but uh, it's good to be back together again, gathered, celebrating Easter. And this morning, uh, in uh, uh, addition to remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we've also come to uh, the end of the book of Isaiah. It's, uh, in my opinion, and I think uh, you'll agree too, a very, a very hope-filled ending to the book of Isaiah. We've been taking this journey for the last 10 weeks, and, and today we finally get to see how it all ends, how the, how the book uh, gets wrapped up. Um, and in order to really truly appreciate the ending, I, I want to kind of reset the story up to this point. And, and it got me thinking, I was, I was reminded of a, a situation I found myself in right out of college. Uh, for a, a few months after college, I was a, a substitute teacher in, in the local school districts. Um, and I got to say that as a, as a substitute teacher, you, you never quite knew what you were going to get yourself into when you walked into a classroom for the first time. Um, there would be some teachers who, who uh, would expect you to continue right on with the regular lesson plan, teach whatever the lesson was supposed to be for that day, just kind of move forward. Um, there, were, there were other teachers who it was kind of a review day, a catch-up day for the students, ask questions that they had, so you would facilitate that. And then other teachers would just say, here's the movie, put it in, hit play. And, and that's what the day would be. So I was thinking back to uh, this one day I was uh, subbing in a high school. And, and this high school had block scheduling, so their, their class periods were 90 minutes long. And the movie uh, Night at the Museum had just come out on DVD. I don't know if you've seen that one before or not, but... Uh, I guess since there's some educational moments in that movie, the teacher felt fine with just putting that in, and, uh, and, and <laughs> all three of, her, of their classes that day watched that movie. And at that point, I hadn't seen the movie yet, so I was kind of excited, hey, I'm going to get paid to watch a movie I haven't seen and, and want to see. But there was a small problem, and <laughs> the problem was that, uh, as I said, the class period was 90 minutes long. The movie was 108 minutes long. And, and it doesn't matter how you do the math. You can't watch a 108-minute movie in 90 minutes. And so I spent my day watching the first 90 minutes of the movie three times. <laughs> and I hadn't seen it yet, so I didn't have a clue how it was uh, supposed to. And it, it kind of felt like if you're one of those people that you listen to a song and it gets to the end and the chord doesn't resolve and it just kind of drives you. In, I mean, that's enough to drive some people crazy. When, I mean, it kind of felt like that. So uh, uh, it wasn't long. Megan and I rented the movie <laughs> after that so that we could actually, uh, I mean, I, was, I wanted to see how it turned out. So I had to watch it the first 90 minutes for the fourth time. But then, you know, we finally, uh, finally got to the end. And I think, you know, my kind of my familiarity with, with the details of the story that I had watched four times kind of made me really appreciate the ending maybe more than, than I would have anyway. But uh, so, so in a, desire, in a desire for us to truly appreciate the ending of Isaiah this morning, I want to make sure we're all up to speed on the story. But in order to do that, we can't just be up to speed on the book of Isaiah. Because the last seven chapters of the book aren't just the ending to the story of Isaiah. It, it's the ending to the story. 
the story, the story of God's redemption of mankind. That's really what the ending of Isaiah focuses upon. So, so we have to begin by recalling all the way back the incredible reality that existed in the Garden of Eden. We have to remember that God created everything good. And not only was everything good, you know, in its own right, but its functioning together and relating together was good as well. And, and at the pinnacle of that goodness was the relationship between God and mankind. God would, he would uh, walk in the cool of the garden and converse with Adam and Eve. There, there was no barrier between them. It was truly a wonderful picture of their intimacy together, God and mankind. But as you probably know, the story moves forward and we see that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and, and brought destruction and shame and suffering and evil and death into the picture. What once was, was no longer. Things had changed, and, and that one act of rebellion spread, and it multiplied and infected every bit of creation. And then one day, one day God calls out to an individual named Abraham, and Abraham was chosen to be the one through whom God would bring about the restoration that he had promised Adam and Eve right after their initial rebellion. And so that man, Adam, began a family through which that promise would be fulfilled, and that family grew into an entire nation. Uh, now, they faced hardships, God's people. Um, they were enslaved for four centuries. Uh, they, uh, even after being set free from their slavery, they were con uh, consistently attacked by other nations surrounding them. But God had chosen this people, and, and if they would simply remain faithful to him, he would work through them, and, and, and he would work through them in such a way that they would shine like a bright light in the world and, and would invite all people back to God if they would remain faithful to him. Uh, but they didn't, right? They didn't. They, they were often seduced by, by the worship practices of their neighbors. They, they rejected God in exchange for idols. And, and even though there were moments where the people came to their senses and, and, and they returned to God, they always fell back into their rebellious ways. And, and this happened generation after generation after generation. So the prophecies that God gave to his people through Isaiah are a clear indication of that failure. I mean, he warned them that their rebellion it wouldn't just lead to a failure of their calling, but it would, it, it would lead them into a situation in which they'd be facing judgment from God for their sin. He was very clear about that. And, and, and just as God warned, the people were eventually attacked by Babylon. Jerusalem was burned. God's temple was burned. And, and the people were taken into captivity. So no king sat on the throne. No priest served in the temple. And really, I think you wouldn't, you wouldn't have faulted the people for wondering if, if that was it. You know, if they'd blown it, that was the end of the story. But it wasn't. It wasn't the end of the story. In the midst of their captivity, God sent a message to his people through Isaiah that they would be delivered. They would be delivered. Yes, they'd failed miserably, and yes, they deserved judgment, 
but they would be saved and they would be restored and, and God would bring judgment upon those nations who attacked his people and God's people would then go back to their land. The temple would be rebuilt. They, they would be free once again. However, that return, that return to the promised land, that, that rebuilding of the temple, that's not the ending either. See, that, that restoration only goes back to the middle of the story. It only goes back to the point where God's people dwelled in their land, but they were still facing uh, threats from other nations. And even more dangerous, they were facing sinful temptations from within themselves. So even that going back to the promised land, resettling the city, rebuilding the temple, even that wasn't the end. God's ultimate plan was to fully redeem and restore creation. And so chapters uh, 60 through 66 of Isaiah prophesy about that real ending. That's the ending that's talked about. That real ending began not with the arrival of God's people back into the promised land. The real ending began when God himself came to earth and, and became human. And we've already made mention of some prophecies earlier in Isaiah, which, which Jesus fulfilled upon his birth. But I, I want to draw your attention to kind of a lesser known one in Isaiah chapter 60. And actually, uh, you, can, you can leave your finger there if you're already there, but first turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And I know it might feel kind of funny reading a story about the wise men on Easter Sunday. I don't have my holidays confused, but... Follow along with me. I just want to read uh, a few verses here, Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, and, and, and take note of some of the details regarding uh, the account of the wise men. It says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So, so keep that in mind and, and back to Isaiah chapter 60. I'm going to read a few verses here and see what details there are that match up with that. So Isaiah chapter 60, uh, verse 1 first. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And then down in verse 3, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then in verse 6, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. See, from the very beginning of Jesus' life, things were happening that pointed to the fact that Jesus was, this baby at that point, was ushering in the end. But it wasn't just things that happened to Jesus upon his birth. That's some of it. But there's more. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 60, uh, excuse me, 61, verse 1. 
Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the, open, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So, so one thing to note in those verses this description of the Spirit of the Lord being on the Redeemer. And, and uh, that, that's already been referenced a couple other times in Isaiah, but we see it again right here. And again, let me read to you another account of Jesus. This is of his baptism from Matthew chapter 3. And again, let's make the connections with what Isaiah is prophesying. Matthew 3.13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So it's quite obvious from the baptism of Jesus that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Uh, it's hard to argue with a dove coming down from heaven and a voice speaking from heaven at the same time. The Spirit of the Lord was most definitely upon Jesus. And then in addition to that, one more. This is uh, Jesus himself references that passage in Isaiah. This is from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I, have you ever tried to picture that? I mean, let, let, let's try to picture that scene for a moment. So, so Jesus is in the synagogue. It's his turn to read from the scriptures. So the scroll of Isaiah is given to him. And he opens it to that passage, Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads that passage. And then he closes the scroll, rolls up the scroll, gives it back, and, and then he, he just comes and he sits down. All right? he, just, he just sits there. And <laughs> as you read this, and it's almost like there's this pause there, the awkward silence, right? Jesus sits back down and everybody's looking at him. Like, you know, probably looking at one another, like, you know, you can't, like, is it just me? Like, you know. And, and then, just to, you know, <laughs> just to make sure, Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm fulfilling that today. Today, I am fulfilling that 
passage. I mean, <laughs> in essence, Jesus is saying the end has begun. The end has begun. The grand climax of the entire redemption story was upon them. And from that point on in Jesus' life, his, he began his public ministry. He, he performed incredible miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, bringing the dead back to life. Uh, he taught crowds. He taught his own disciples with a wisdom that had never been seen before in another human. Uh, he served mankind, not, not just by doing things for them through his miracles, but, but through offering his very life on the cross as the, as the forgiveness of sins. We've focused on that quite a bit the last couple Sundays. And then the very thing which we celebrate this morning— after three days, Jesus rose from the dead and he emerged from that tomb in victory. So Satan and sin and death suffered the ultimate defeat. I mean, it was a, a shocking and powerful display. And, and as we reflect on that event and, and, and read about it in any of the four Gospels, it, it might be tempting to think that the resurrection of Jesus is the actual ending. I mean, after all, it comes at the end of each of the Gospels, doesn't it? And, and maybe we even throw Jesus' ascension into heaven in there for good measure as well. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus can sometimes be viewed as the end of the story. But they're not. That's, that's not the end. Uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, that is the focal point upon which all of history hangs, but it's not the end. It's only the beginning of the end, really. I mean, all we have to do is look around and realize that, uh, that the restoration that's promised has not been fully realized yet. Uh, things are not as they were in the Garden of Eden quite yet. The real ending, the, the ending of the story of sin invading our world, will take place. It will take place. And Isaiah points ahead to that wonderful ending in the last chapters of his book. He, he paints this incredible picture of what things will be like once that final ending comes to a close. So the section that Jesus quoted uh, about uh, good news for the poor and liberty for the captives and, and the year of the Lord's favor being upon them, that's part of it. Um, Isaiah chapter 61 ends with God causing righteousness and praise to sprout up from the nations. Chapter 65 references the new heavens and the new earth. The people are joyful and glad. There's no more sound of weeping or crying or distress. There's no more threats upon God's people. God will answer his people before they even call to him. It, it, it's a reference of deep intimacy with God once again. Uh, the wolf and the lamb graze together. It talks about that. And, and, and throughout this entire section, the, the theme of God's glory is, is woven through it all. At the end, his glory will be unmistakable throughout all of creation. And chapter 66 goes on and says that all will come to worship before the Lord. That's the ending. That's a wonderful ending, if we think about it. 
That is a truly wonderful ending. And, you know, when we look around and, and take stock of, of the pain and suffering and hardship that we see in the world as, as well as what we experience in our, in our own lives, I think we can't help but, but find hope in knowing what the ending will be what the real ending is going to look like. The, the goodness that was lost all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, it's going to be restored once again. It's going to be restored once again. All things will be made right. The, the ending of this story of, adem- of redemption is, is then going to lead right into the sequel where God's people dwell with him for all eternity on the new heaven and new earth. I mean, that is, that is wonderful. And, and the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate this morning, that is the promise of what is to come. The resurrection is the promise. It is the promise that the ending which has been foretold in Isaiah and other places in Scripture, it will take place. It is taking place. It's the beginning of the end. Jesus himself rising from the dead is the proof. That's the proof. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus rising from the dead is the first fruits of what will take place. It's only the beginning of the harvest that is yet to be completed. In Christ, all will be made alive. So Jesus, the first fruits, is first, and then after him, those who belong to him. His resurrection is the beginning of that end. And then Paul says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Death itself is is swallowed up in victory. And we are given that victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that is a wonderful ending that is promised to us. And we celebrate this morning the resurrection that is the beginning of that. It's the first fruits of what is yet to come. But I I would be remiss if I didn't give you the full picture of the ending that's described in Isaiah and and Revelation and, and again other places in the Bible. Because there is, in a sense, two sides to the one ending. One of the sides uh, we've been talking about this morning, restoration, uh, redemption, eternal life on the new earth. However, our God does not force anyone into that. Um, he, he does not strong arm anyone into worshiping him. Uh, mankind will be free right up until the very end to choose to reject him. And, and sadly, there will be those who reject him, who persist in rebellion. And for those who, who reject God, the, the message in this section of Isaiah, and really throughout the whole book of Isaiah and the whole of the Bible, it's the same message, that there will be judgment upon sin, and there will be eternal punishment rather than eternal joy and peace for those who choose to reject him. So the, the first coming of Jesus including his death and his resurrection from the dead, was about providing the means necessary for forgiveness and salvation from sin. His second coming will be about justice, 
So the first coming was about uh, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favors, Isaiah says. The second coming will be to proclaim the day of vengeance upon sin, as Isaiah also says. Um, and, and in Isaiah chapter 63 especially, it paints a stark picture that is actually utilized again in Revelation chapter 19. There are a lot of parallels between Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. It's a, it's a picture of those who continue to reject God and rebel against him. Uh, those who forsake God, those who do what is evil, they will be, uh, they'll be given judgment. In that chapter, it speaks about uh, garments stained red with blood and the winepress of God's wrath. It's, it's not a pleasant picture. I'm not going to pretend that it is. But it's a real picture of that other side of the ending. And, and Isaiah chapter 65 even kind of uh, portrays these two different sides of the ending. So Isaiah chapter 65, verse 13 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and shall wail for breaking of spirit. And those are two very different experiences of the ending. Two very different ones. And, and it's not about doing certain things in order to please God so that he looks favorably upon us. Uh, not at all. Chapter 66 goes into that. God draws attention to the fact that there were some who, who try outwardly to, to appear like they're pleasing God, but, but God knows their heart within them. He knows their heart. He says uh, in the first uh, few verses of chapter 66, he says, those who sacrifice an ox are the same as those who kill a man. He says, those who sacrifice a lamb are like those who break a dog's neck. Uh, those who give a grain offering like those who offer the unclean pig's blood on the altar. Uh, those who give a sweet-smelling offering like those who bless an idol. In other words, God is not fooled by outward displays of piety. He's just not. Rather, what God desires and what he says in verse 2 of chapter 66 is those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Those who, who tremble at his word, he says there. So in other words, those who humble themselves before God, those who accept him for, for who he is, um, it's those who admit their own sins and failures, those who repent before God, those who receive the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross who experience salvation. But again, it's not forced on anyone. The ending of the story, which we will experience, depends upon whether we humbly accept the sacrifice of Jesus or, or continue in uh, rebellion against him. Same ending, but two sides of it. The resurrection of Jesus has, has set in motion the final ending of this sinful fallen world. Uh, the end has begun. You could say it that way. The end has begun. And I don't know how long the end is going to go. Nobody, nobody knows for sure. No one knows the day or hour when Jesus will return, when his second coming will take place. But we are to be ready 
Bible talks about. We are to be ready. So the question that we can ask is not how long will the end last, but are we ready? Are we ready? Have you humbled yourself before God and accepted the work of Jesus upon the cross as the penalty paid for your sins? And if so, you're ready. You're ready, and I would challenge you to live in that readiness each and every day. And if not, then, then you're not ready. And, and my prayer would be that, that no one here would find themselves facing judgment from God upon their sin when he returns. And, and I don't say that to scare anyone into anything, but I do say it out of, out of love and concern, hoping that, that each one of us will receive the forgiveness and salvation that is offered to us. I mean, we with Good Friday, with Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the fact that God loves us. God loves you and he loves me so much that he was willing to pay the price to secure that salvation. He was willing to take that judgment that I should receive, that all of us here should receive. He took it upon himself. And his resurrection is not only the victory over sin, it is that, but it is also the validation that the end has begun. Upon his return, he will come to bring final judgment upon sin and establish his eternal kingdom on the new earth. It is coming. So, so I was thinking about, you know, on Easter Sunday, we we rightly say Christ is risen and then echo that with he is risen indeed. Uh, but I think there's maybe another verse that we can or, or even should add to that. We ought to also say that Christ is coming and echo that with he is coming again. So let's try that, those two. So the typical Easter greeting, Christ is risen then along with that, Christ is coming. He's coming again. And, and when he comes again, it will be the final end to this chapter and the beginning of a glorious, glorious eternity for all those who have humbled themselves before him, those who've put their faith in him. Would you stand with me? Let's pray to God this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the victory that is shown in that, that your power is so clearly on display. Your power over sin and Satan and death. But we also thank you that your resurrection is also a first fruits. It is a promise of what we will experience in you. Your resurrection is just the beginning of the end. And so we give you praise this morning. I thank you so much that, that I can have hope in that, that I can rest firmly in the promises that you have made regarding what is to come. God, I ask that you would speak to all of us here uh, this morning, that this wouldn't just be another Easter or even 
and Easter back gathered together again, unlike last year, but, but that we would truly remember that, uh, that you are coming, that you are coming again. Your resurrection is just the beginning of the end. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you, uh, would you humble us? God, we know that humility is not a natural attitude for us. Would you work in our hearts that we might find ourselves humbly before you, accepting you? God, I give you praise for the hope that awaits. We give you praise for the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah talks about. We give you praise that all things will be good once again. What we messed up in the Garden of Eden, you have restored and redeemed. And one day it will all be right. And so we thank you. We look forward to that. We find hope and joy in an eternity spent with you in goodness. We give you praise this morning, God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your humility. Thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you for your powerful victory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.